stepping back and stroking two. Bogdanovich thinking about a three. There it is. Yes! See it again. No double team help and Embiid takes it right to the rack. What is going on, everybody? It is a brand new episode of the Feed to Embiid. We are back after about a month's hiatus. Uh, try to space these out a little bit so I can focus on writing for the for the for being a Sixers beat writer. But every once in a while, you got to check back in on the vocal side with my man Brock Landis. Brock, you are killing the YouTube, TikTok, Twitter video montage reel narration game what is going on my man you weren't taking a hiatus you were trapped in that uh bane batman cave from the batman rises trying to climb your way back in that that's how it's looking krell i'm good i'm happy i'm healthy i'm busy i appreciate you i appreciate you having me i appreciate the kind words but ultimately go ahead oh i I think brock is for those who can't see us which is everybody because this is not being a publicly okay thing he's referring to my mustache and beard i'm usually yeah, not use your imagination yeah i'm usually not a mustache and beardsman but uh i decided it's like you know what i'm tired of shaving this every 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 week and having to go all that all the way out i'm gonna grow the the, the little chin area out i'm gonna grow the, the see how far i can take the, the mustache and here we are I'm a, i have a little bit up and up and down both you know for some people it looks like you're someone who isn't allowed to be near a school. Well, you have that. I, I, I wouldn't. That's a little too self-deprecating. But what I would say is, you know, on the beat, you might feel a little starstruck at times. You see LeBron James. You see Joel. I feel starstruck right now doing this with you, Krell. You, you, you've got a different appearance. You're killing it at the Farg. So, but again, yeah, you know, it's. It's 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 nothing too crazy. I think I actually look decent with the upper lip hair. You look whereas good, other, bro. Whereas others don't. But anyway, enough about my hair and about my appearance that nobody cares about. Uh, we have this Sixers team. They are it's a big test. Everyone's like the bit the hard part of their schedule is coming up in the second half of the year. They lose a, a a bummer to Oklahoma City in Philly. Then they go out on a five-game trip where they're going to Utah. They go to L.A. for two. They go to Portland, and then they come back to Sacramento. Didn't make a lot of sense, but there they go. There they are. Brock, they sweep the road trip. They go five and zero on the road trip. It's a very successful trip for them. Uh, in that road trip, they have uh, a, a total plus, a point differential of plus twenty-four. Over the five games, so they're winning each. They're, on average, they're winning those games by less than five points. A couple nail biters. They win two by one point each, and they win the last game by two points. Sprinkled in there were a couple of ten point wins. So you know, it, it all in all, not don't care about point differential, but five and zero trip over that five game trip. Eighth in offense, thirteenth in defense. They are outscoring their opposition by five points per one hundred possessions. What did you make of that road trip? I like that you alluded to the fact that although they had this point differential, two games were decided by only a couple points because I think it's important 
in January, the early stages of your season to face adversity and more so come back and overcome that adversity. So I thought they got punched. They responded well defensively. There was that Oklahoma game in Philly beforehand where they decided they weren't going to show up that night. There was Utah where it's just difficult to hold a 20-point lead. They let Utah without Sexton, Laurie Markkinen, to name a few, come back. And then the Lakers game where late they struggled a bit, but they were able to secure that win. I think there's a couple of things that I could say off the top of my head really stand out. The two-man synergy between James and Joel. It seems the communication is on point. They're getting any shot they want on the floor at the rim, mid-range, three-pointers, and they're also creating shots for other players around the perimeter. But what I'm going to talk about is Tyrese Maxey coming off of the bench. Now, is this sustainable? I'm not sure. I think the Sixers are going to pick and choose their spots when they want to start them if they don't just completely re back into the starting lineup. But what I've noticed and what I like about Tyrese coming off of the bench, now, mind you, before this happened, I'm saying 22, almost 23 points per game. He's made a name for himself. He has his own identity in this league. It's disrespectful to bring a player like Maxi off of the bench. But I, I think Doc and Tyrese have, have managed this really well. It's not about who starts the game. It's about who finishes. And if Reese is going to play 30, 32 minutes, it doesn't matter if he's in the starting five. Now, the reason I like it is because Maxi's playing really well off playing really well off of Maxi. When you throw Melton or when you throw Harden with those two, it's pretty seamless. And it changes the identity of a game, having come off the bench. You know, with Harden, with Embiid, with Tobias, with how much they post up, with how much they spot up and face up. It's slowing the game down in the half court. You have a guy like Maxi come off of the bench. Now the game is a different speed. It's catch, get downhill, get the ball live, rebound, attack. Get the ball off the glass, there's two guys streaking. So as much as I'm not sure it's going to be sustainable, I do like it for the foreseeable future. Changes the pace of the game. So the two-man game I thought was like critically important. And um, I mean, obviously they won that Utah game down the stretch. I thought like the best thing they did with the two-man game in this five-game trip was, you know, they have – the close games against LA, against uh, Utah, against well, the last close game was really against uh, Sacramento, where neither guy played. But they loved, you know, one of my biggest gripes with them down uh, this season, the two man game has been they run it to to exhaustion through the th- first three quarters, and it's. I don't, I you know, I don't have access to the exact like points per possession when they're those two are pick and roll, but I would imagine it's one of the most effective plays in the NBA right now. Of course, and they run it all game long. They get um, they get all the points they want, and then when it comes to crunch time, where does <laughs> it go? Yeah, they they forget they can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, except except on this road trip. I Utah, they did it, and Joel gets the get, gets the game winning bucket with four seconds left. Um, they do it to uh, you know they, they, they do it against the Lakers. Joel didn't have a great game against the Lakers; like he still put up his usual stat line, but it, it, I didn't feel like he was applying himself at the most dominant. I thought he settled for some jumpers, and he was got he got the two man game, but he you know he, he missed some jumpers down the stretch there that kind of made it for not. Um, but 
they they used it in crunch time. That was their default play in crunch time rather than going isolation, rather than going delay action, rather than post-ups for Joel or what, what have you. And that was a big uh, growing point for them. And I think the next progression in that two-man game has to be Harden recognizing, okay, Joel is not getting going. His jumper's off the mark. He looks bored. Hey, big fella, come here, screen for me. And just dive, and I'm going to hit you a couple times in a row. And just getting him re-engaged and established in a game when he's not able to get him going himself early on, I think is the next progression there where James recognizes it and to, and just draws it up himself for Joel to get going. And I think that's what a, a point guard is supposed to do, recognizing, hey, this we need this guy going if we're going to win this game. Let me see if I can get him going myself. Two things about that two-man game. The first, I've got to give credit to both James and Embiid because, you know, James, 11 assists per game, leads the league in assists. He's really bought into this role as a point guard. And if you take it to consideration that Embiid's scoring about 34 points per game, Harden 22, I, I watch Harden sacrifice probably 6 to 12 points per game just running the two-man and getting shots for Embiid so he can get into a rhythm early. So his 33 points per game is impressive, but of the 11, 12 buckets he scores per game, about five or six are usually assisted by James. The, the, the fact that James has bought into this and is getting Embiid shots is making the game so much easier for him. The second is that maybe last year when they had the honeymoon stage, it was difficult for them to get fully acclimated, and then you blink, it's playoff time. Yeah. I noticed around Christmas, it really seemed like Embiid was starting to command things out of the two-man game. And I think back to the game in the Garden, there were a couple of times in that second quarter before the half ended where Embiid's talking to Melton on the wing. He's saying, no, 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 don't cut. Stay on the wing. PJ's in the dunker. PJ's going to move to the opposite block. It's going to clear out the right side of the floor for me so they can't bring help. They can't bring a double baseline, and I'm going to get a shot at the rim. They did that a couple of times. Then a few weeks later, they're in Washington, and the broadcast gets a shot of James on the floor from the floor vantage point, and it looks like he said to Embiid, roll. And what happened is, the two Wizards defenders get caught up on the hedge and Bede rolls to the basket. He's wide open on the roll. So I think it's really a play-by-play -play communication thing. It's not, okay, the game starts and we're just going to run the two. Every single time they bring the ball up the floor, they're communicating with each other. Hey, let's get a shot at the basket. I'm going to roll to the mid-range. Hey, I'll get you the ball on the elbow. I'm going to three-point line. You get as far to the basket as you if you need the kick out, I'm back here for you. So I really like that both of them are on the same page and it feels like a real offense. It feels like their offense has a flow. One last thing. I know I said two. I'll make this point quick. It's kind of piggybacking on what you said about they can run this into the ground for three quarters, get whatever they want, and in the fourth quarter, they forget they can do it. You've got to think how many options – I mean, basketball is a simple game, Krell. There's 10 players. There's only so many actions. It's a simple game. But I say that to say this simple action, a Joel Embiid screen and roll, pop, whatever, leads to about 10 options off the top of my head. A, jo uh, a Joel Embiid 
Joel Embiid rolls to the mid-range. Joel Embiid floats to the mid-range. Joel Embiid pops for three. James gets downhill. He scores a lay. James gets down here. He pulls up for the mid-range. James drives. Help comes off the wing. Kick. Shot on the wing. Help comes from the low man to the corner. Right? There are so many options that come from this simple action. That late game, why would you do anything other than that? So it's up to James and Joel to protect that ball and, and have diligence when they do it. And no team should be able to stop it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's unstoppable. Only thing that I think is like low key stopping it at the moment, not, not stopping it, but maybe not getting it to the point where it's like redeeming points every possession is that I think some of their main shooters have kind of hit a little bit of a slump. Like DeAnthony been off the mark a little bit. Tobias been off the mark a little bit. Tyrese is finding his stroke, but has, you know, was struggling from deep for a while. Um, so that, you know, that, that'll come around. And then when that comes around, they'll be firing on all cylinders for sure. Um, the starting lineup that the, the doc introduces the concepts of the three starting lineups. And I think it's going to be like, obviously Joel, PJ, Tobias, uh, James and, D'Anthony be one. Joel, PJ, Tobias, James, uh, Tyrese would be another. And then I, I would guess it's going to be James, Tobias, or sorry, Joel, Tobias, D'Anthony, uh, Tyrese, and James would be the third one. We've only seen like, well, the first two because the third one hasn't happened because PJ hasn't been off the bench yet this season. But the, the theoretical starting five in the Utah game is Harden, Tyrese, Melton, Tucker, and Beat. It's close to the what the theoretical starting five that you would see in one of those options. And they're outscored by 8.4 points per 100 possessions in 18 minutes. I, I, I do think it is problematic that like you have this Harden, Tyrese backcourt. Um, and you know uh, the, the non-maxi starting five, uh, which is you know the one I just mentioned that has PJ, has Melton, but no Tyrese. Um, it, that was plus eleven point eight per hundred in fifty-one minutes over the Clippers, Lakers, and Portland games. So you're seeing that as soon as you introduce the this double point, this double guard liability lineup where it's you know, Harden, Tyrese, whether it be whether whether it be your closing lineup or not, if it's playing your lo- the most minutes on your team, you're ultimately going to be running thin in terms of your margin point differential. Um, worth noting that on the season, the Harden, Melton, Harris, Tucker, and Bead lineup is plus twelve point eight per hundred, which is set which is ranks in the seventy nine percentile of all lineups in the NBA. That have played at least hundred possessions. So that's looks like it's going to be their best big minute lineup. Now, lately D'Anthony Melton has not played as many minutes. I don't know why it's something that I'll probably, you know, ask about when next time I'm there, which will be Wednesday. Um, I don't think, I mean, he hasn't been on the injury report. So I don't know if it's just toggling between different options and trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work. And he's and his minutes are cut right now for a little bit, but um, they have to. I, I think a solution for the for for this mean this short period of time, rest of the season that being, 
is that you have to really give a, a big consideration to Tyrese coming off the bench. Um, just because you just don't have the defensive chops to, uh, to, you know, guard with a Harden and Maxi backcourt. And it isn't like they're switching a ton. They, they like to play drop mostly because Joel likes to play drop. Um, and Maxi is not great at fighting through screens yet. And neither is Melton. Melton has not been very good at fighting through screens. At least not consistently, but he has the length to get deflections and create havoc in the passing lanes. And that is something that Maxi doesn't have yet. And Tyrese is, you know, he's an all that he, he gives you a lot of effort and you commend him for that. But, um, his main defensive thing right now is like, he's very good at, you know, uh, cheating, cheating the lane and rushing for backside double teams and, you know, stripping the ball away when a guy has his back turned. But other than that, an obvious defensive liability, he's strong. He's smaller than most guards. He is not quite strong enough there yet where he can be a pit bull. I mean, SGA is a tough example because SGA is a killer, but uh, like he was, he, he was all night long. It was SGA show. And he Not was, he was getting to the free throw line. He was getting to the mid range and they, they were getting cooked. So as long as James Harden is a sixer, I do, whether that be the, only the rest of this year, whether that be next year, whether that be beyond, I do okay. think we have this conundrum where it's like, what do we do with Tyrese? And I, my suspicion would be that Tyrese is not going to be great with coming with the coming off the bench for in perpetuity because he is agent as Rich Paul and this is clutch sports and he's averaging over 20 points a game. He's, and he is obviously on a star trajectory, uh, and stars don't come off the bench. So we'll see. Doc said in one of the press conferences that he texted that Tyrese texted him about the idea of turning off the bench, and he was like, "Yeah, we should do it." And then, and then they interviewed Tyrese. Next, it looked like he, he and, didn't look like he can't and, and, for that. And, and he was like, "He's like, he's like, yeah, you know, it's whatever." <laughs> We're like. Eh. I don't know about that one. So, uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. But I think the Melton thing is because whereas he'd come off the bench and get 26 minutes, 28 minutes, upwards of 30 on some nights, Maxie's the first player off of the bench and he's playing 32 minutes off of the bench. So it just gives Melton less time on the floor. What I will say about Maxie coming off of the bench, Melton starting is that Melton can play a similar offensive role with Harden and Embiid that Maxi would. If you think about it, when Maxi's on the floor with them, it's not the Maxi show. It's Harden handling, getting the rock to Embiid primarily, and then everybody else eats. They get their opportunities. So Maxi, when he's on the floor with those two doing that, he's going to stand in the corner. He's going to stand on the wing. When he has an open shot, he's going to shoot it. When he catches... The defense rotates. He's going to put it on the floor and beat the rotation. And in transition, he's going to run. Live rebound, loose ball. He's going to take off. I've seen Melton be a complimentary piece to Embiid and Harden doing the same thing. The difference is Melton does that. But when he comes off of the bench, Melton doesn't give you a, a huge boost in scoring. He kind of just plays within the team's system, within the team's identity. Whereas Maxi. He's going to do that with those two on the floor. But when he's by himself, you've seen it in the Sacramento game. You saw it against the Clippers. The guy's got the green light to do whatever he wants. He's going to come off of two screens. He's going to 
get downhill. He's going to shoot floaters, middies, lays, three-point shots deep. So I like it in theory because, like I said before, it changes the identity of a game. You're slow. You bring Maxi in. It's completely different. Now it's a high, fast-paced offense. But Rich Paul's his agent. He's on the star trajectory. How long can he come off the bench? Now, Jordan Poole came off the bench. He got over $100 million. Jalen Brunson, similar archetype, playing incredible ball in New York, got over $100 million. Ty Hero, six-man role, $100 million. I say all that to say Tyrese is for $100 million. The Sixers are going to get first dibs to pay him that money. They can't pay him that money, but if he becomes disgruntled because he's coming off the bench for too long, then there's problems, and you don't want that. So I I don't know how sustainable it is, but I will say for their offense, for the sake of maybe a lack of scoring on the bench, I like it. Yeah, I like it too. Um, And I think think most important, it isn't just that he comes off the bench, right? It's that you you play him with the right guys so that way he can be – effective and be himself because the version of maxi that is himself is like a walking 15 point run okay you know you know in in a quarter like we saw um i don't think right now at this point in his return from the foot injury i i don't know that throwing him in with four bench guys is most conducive to getting that like obviously it's supposed to empower him to be the guy because he's the only guy that can create his own shot at three different levels. But I see him catch the ball and, and like he looks like he's operating just within the flow of an offense and going through the walkthrough of an offense instead of trying to like, okay, I have a decision to make here. Do I shoot this? Do I go off the dribble? Do I attack the basket? I don't see that as much out of him. Now that could be usage. Like the more he gets comfortable, the more he'll do it. But I think right now you need to keep him in that. If you're going to keep him off the bench, you need to stagger one of James and Joel with him. And I think the thing that I would be most interested to see, and credit to Rich Hoffman for writing a great story out of The Athletic about this, um, Tyrese and Shake together with Joel would, might be an interesting look in that first. Of- Say again? whole lot of buckets. Oh, yeah. So those two together. Um, those, those two together in 407 Tyrese and, and shake that is in uh, 474 possessions this season are those lineups are outscoring opponents by 13.2 per hundred, which is better than 98% of all lineups to, to log at least hundred possessions this season. You want to go to, <coughs> you want to go to uh, Tyrese shake and Joel. They've done 34 possessions together. That's, Plus sixty one point four per hundred. So I, you're, you're 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 breaking you're breaking the system with a with I mean granted very limited sample size of course but you're breaking the system with those two on the court together and you're doing it you're, you're dismantling everything with Tyrese Shake and Joel together. Can I use this as an opportunity to praise Shake Milton? Yes, because I feel in years past. Shake's played tunnel vision basketball. He's had to look over his shoulder. He's dealt with, well, am I a shooting guard? Am I a primary ball handler? I've seen tremendous growth from Shake this season, notably on the offensive end, 
because he's handling the ball. He's running the two-man game. He's deferring to Tyrese. He's letting Tyrese eat. But he's really picking and choosing his spots, getting to those spots, attacking, and playing off of the guys around him. Whereas, like I said, maybe he played tunnel vision ball. Now he's fitting into the offense almost perfectly. 10 points per game. He's shooting about 38% from three. He shot better in his career, but these are the most important three balls he's ever taken. This is when James cooks up an open three-point shot, you got to knock it down. When they double and beat, if you're on the floor with them, down. He's doing that. He's shooting a career high, almost 51% from the field. And I've just seen awesome growth from him in this offense, kind of finding his own shot, but also giving Tyrese and James and Embiid the opportunity to eat with him on the floor, saying, hey, you guys do yours. I'll do what you need me to do. I'll stay. I'll knock down the three ball if I have to. Yes, I agree. I, I, I'd, be, I'd be interested to write a story about this, but I've noticed that his three-point shot has kind of devolved as time has gone on. And granted, I really don't care about that because unlike with most guys, he's a sniper of a two-point shooter. Um, like him shooting a, an 18-footer, even though it's not worth as much as a 22-footer, I'm still like, this is like, am I really going to argue over the, the semantics of this? Like, he's he's a freaking sniper. I mean, the guy is shooting 45% on mid range jumpers. He's shooting, ready for this? This is going to blow your mind. Between 14 feet and the three point arc. So, the free throw line, the three point arc. Deep two. He's, yeah, long two. He is shooting 60% on long twos. Wow. This is a 6 6 combo guard. The 54th pick in the 2018 draft. He is shooting 60% on long twos. That is ridiculous. Um, and you know, I think sometimes he doesn't have great arc to it, but it he gets it he gets it over the rim just enough and it, it can be flat, but he has touch and Good way to describe it. Yeah, he gets it, he gets it right over the right over the front of the rim. And it, it, it's it's basically an automatic bucket for the Sixers. It's it's an incredible shot for them. Um He's great at it. Now, but to get back to the point, I do wonder if, like, remember last year he had that, like, he he collided with Andre Drummond under a under a basket, and he Lower missed body injury. Yep. Time with the with, with the back injury. I do wonder if that has been had lingering effects on his ability to generate power up into his up into his longer his, his three point shot because there is a very long shot base and load for him to get into that three point shot. And that wasn't that didn't exist back when he really broke out. Like he had a much quicker release. He could shoot it off the dribble a little bit, and he can still shoot it off the dribble a little bit now. But it's a little bit like clunky. And he, I mean, he looks like he's shooting a bowling ball. And I, you know, he needs a very long time to get that three point shot up. Now, um, I would love to ask him about it. I'll try to get that interview if I can. But that is something that I, I've kind of noticed is he's not that he his long shot has not been what it was two years ago, three years ago. I think he's just so good around the basket, getting downhill and and right at the rim, that that's the highest percentage shot he should take. So yeah. why take a three? Why take a midi? When I can just get to the basket and do my work here. But uh, I, I do see him kind of picking and choosing his spots a little more this season. And I mean, 38% from three, it's still above average. But what's most important about that is when you're playing with James, when you're playing with Embiid, 
you've got to be able to knock down the open three balls. And I've seen Shake do that. So I don't care if it's ugly. It's the same thing as Tyrese Halliburton's. If it goes in, it goes in. Don't yeah. broke it. Don't break it if it ain't broken. No, I, I totally agree. I'm just curious to see why that why that mechanically has devolved over the couple of years. Uh, it might be nothing. Maybe I'm over assessing it, but I'd be fascinated to see if there's an ex- explanation for what I'm seeing there. Um, but to your point, he's been incredible this season for this team. And I think he and Maxi playing together is the first step in that second unit. We yep. are um, now about 30 minutes in Brock. Let's move over to uh, making an all-star case for James Harden. And I don't think it's a hard case to make. Oh. Yeah. Um, you want to go first? Or want me to go first. You go ahead. All right. The Sixers with James Harden on the court this season are plus 7.1 per 100 possessions. With him off the court, they are plus 1.29. That takes you from barely surviving to, with him on the court, you are a fairly well-functioning team, like one of the better, one of the best net ratings in the NBA. Let's say, well, let's say, okay, well, James relies on Joel too. Um, with James... With James and Joel off the court, the Sixers are minus 3.9 per 100. With James on Joel off, they are plus 2.2. So you're seeing like a four and a half point swing uh, just with on the, about less than that, a four point whatever swing um, with just Harden on the court by himself, no Joel. Um, so he has absolutely contributed to what this team is doing at, 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 at the highest level. Um, and I, you know, I, I think the more that, you know, we watch him play, it's like, he's, he's the engine behind their whole, their whole offense. Joel scores all the points, but I mean, the guy gets the easiest 10 assists, 12 assists, 13 assists you've ever seen. Um, he leads the team in passing. I'm trying to pull this up. Passes made 2069 passes. Leads the team. Uh, he next closest is DeAnthony Melton at eighteen hundred five. This might be where he gets the whole thing. Assists three thirty seven to Joel's one forty two. Second place, he's plus almost two. He's almost out assisted. The next closest guy by two hundred assists. This one's wild though. Assist points created for James eight hundred seventy seven points. He's created. The next closest guy is Shake. At 377. I'm, I'm sure that leads the NBA too. the assist points created. I don't, I don't know. I don't have it yet in front of me, but I'm, I wouldn't, I would bet it's close. He is out assisting the next closest sixer, sixer by 500 points. <laughs> he is, he isn't the scorer he once was. I don't think anyone's questioning that, but he is without a doubt just an absurdly good passer. And no, the 877 is not leading the NBA. It would be Tyrese Halliburton first, then Nikola Jokic, then uh, Trey Young, Luka, and then James. Um, and James is not close to either of those, uh, any of those guys either. So well, he um, did miss 15 games. Yeah. Yeah. Too. Yeah. That's fair. So, um, do you, do you, do you conclude with that? Any final remarks? No, uh, I think that's basically, you know, about it. I mean, look, he's, we, we can go to the, the scoring numbers too, but I mean, he really isn't much of a scorer anymore. I mean, he's still a very capable scorer at 
22 points per game, yeah. Yeah, yeah. pretty consistent um, from beyond. I will say that one of the best things is assist turnover. His assist uh, to turnovers are down. Uh, he's his assist percentage is 100 percentile in the NBA, better than basically everybody. Um, half of the half of the uh, teams made shots are assisted on. Nearly half of the teams made shots he assists on, but the shooting accuracy has also come up a little bit. He is shooting 37 percent on threes. 47% on, on, on mid-rangers, 62% on long twos, better than Shake. So we've seen quite the rebound from last season to this season for James Harden. Um, even if the rim finishing isn't isn't what it was last season, I think the eye test says he's capable of a little more around the rim than he was last season. Um, all in all, I think it's a, been a spectacular rebound season for him, and he was an all-star last year. Granted, all the numbers are inflated this year, but I mean – they're nowhere near where they are without James Harden. For me, the case lies in the results, the body of work. We'll start with James scoring 22 points per game, identical to his scoring totals in 2021 with the Sixers, about 22 points per game. There's a difference in how he's scoring those 22 points per game. He's got his burst back. He's got his quick first step up to par, and he's got his combo game right. When I say combo game, I mean he'll hit you with a little cross tween behind the back, get downhill, whereas last season, his combos weren't right. He's got that thing on a string. He's getting to the basket. He's finishing better this season than he did last, and he's utilizing the mid-range to his advantage. He's taking guys one-on-one and scoring in that mid-range area. What's that doing? That's making the two-man game more difficult to defend because he's a threat to score at all three levels. He's a threat to score from three, now the mid-range, and at the basket. So in a sense, he's almost reinvented himself as a scorer in order to weaponize his playmaking. Now, as far as playmaking, 11 assists per game. He leads the NBA in assists. You might say 22 and 11, good numbers, pedestrian in comparison to something that Jalen Brown or Trey Young or Kyrie's doing 25-5-5. But when you watch what James Harden has added to this offense as a playmaker, it doesn't screw Joel Embiid anymore. He's the primary scorer, but the offense runs through Harden. He's the one that gets everybody in their spots and gets guys their shots. Maybe two years ago, everything Joel Embiid did was unassisted. He'd give you 12 buckets a game. Nine of them were unassisted. This is taking guys one-on-one, doing this little package, getting to the basket, mid-range, whatever. Now, Harden is the sole offensive source. He gets shots for Tobias. He gets shots for Embiid. He gets shots for Maxi Melton. And it's not just getting them shots. You pass them the ball, they shoot. No, he's making deep entry passes before the defense has any time to react. And the ball is nowhere near the defense, only where his receiver can get the ball. He's running the two-man game, pocket pass. The pass can't get stolen. and beats dancing right into a jump shot, a shot at the rim, whatever the case may be. He's turned them into an offense that can get up and down the floor with his pass-aheads and his vision in transition. As far as floor game, Trez sets him a screen. He's going to read what happens defensively in an instant. He'll get Trez the ball wide open. George Niang going to set him a screen. He reads what happens. He gets Niang an open three ball. So his floor game is unmatched. 
And that's my case. It lies in the body of work. You might look at the numbers and you say that's pretty pedestrian. When you watch him play, he's reinvented himself as a scorer. He's used that to weaponize his playmaking. And if Luka Doncic didn't exist, James Harden would be the best playmaker in the NBA. But at the moment, it's 1A, 1B. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very, you know, we, very convincing argument. I mean, I'm already on the, on board with it. Um, one thing I think is important to note as well, James is 4-2 and two without Joel this season, and they are 16-8 and eight together. But James's stats are like 20, 10, and 7 without Joel. Or with, uh, yeah, with Joel, without Joel, sorry, without Joel. Um, with Joel, 22, 12, and 6. He's not having a dramatic fall off without Joel. It isn't like he's reliant all on Joel, like I think many people would perceive it to be. Like I think at the national level and even to an extent the local level, there's this perception like the Sixers only have one star, it's Joel, and James is like hanging on. No, it's no, it's 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 very much you better watch the damn you better watch the damn Sixers if you think that's true. Yeah. No, it's it's absurd to watch. Um to your point earlier about the leading the league in assist points created, you are correct. In assist points created per game, he has a two point lead over Tyrese Halliburton. Of course. In the NBA. So I mean, per game so the, the fifteen point the fifteen point um fifteen game uh misses Definitely hurts his case as the leader, but per game stats suggest that he would be at the top if he were able to play for all those for all those games he missed. Um, I think he right now is a top three or four point guard in the NBA. Of course, uh, you, you got to say Luca. Luca's six six plus probably. He's bigger. He's stronger than most guys. He plays right through you. He's going to take twenty two shots, shoot it about fifty percent and still find ways to create about 12 to 15 open shots on a nightly basis. Outside of Luka, I like Halliburton. Halliburton got hurt. I'm not sure you can make a case for anybody being a better point guard playmaker than James. The argument would be who? Chris Paul? No. LeBron? He's, he's not the point forward that he used to be. He's more of like a hybrid, just attack the basket. He's not creating shots for others as much. Giannis, of course not. I mean, Trey Young, Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, Kyrie yeah. Irving. I don't think any have a more compelling case as a, as a, as a better playmaker than James. So I don't know that I think Trey Young is a better playmaker. No, definitely yeah. not. Like, he's, like, he's definitely not. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't, first of all, I don't know that guys like to play with Trey Young the way that they seem to like to play with Harden. Um, I don't know that I think Luca is a point guard. I think he's more like a forward. I think Luca's a point. I think Luca's a point. He's got yeah. the ball in his hands ninety-five percent of the time. Bringing the yeah. rock up, playing point, distributing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just think like we've diluted the definition of like positions. Like, I think high usage guy who makes great passes. Yeah, I guess he is a point guard because like he's the one that's that's bending the defense himself um, point. yeah I, yeah uh, because listen because listen Giannis plays with a point guard Jokic you could probably argue is a point center but he's not a point guard Jason Tatum plays with a point guard Luka doesn't play with a point guard he is the point guard 
and you play around Luca. Luca don't need anybody to get him into his spots. He puts everybody in their spots and delivers the ball when he feels like it. Yeah. I have a question for you that I, I, I was, I do some of my best basketball thinking when I'm in the shower. Very, very bizarre, but I do. Yeah, that is. Well, go <laughs> ahead. Man, I would think on the commute home, maybe at halftime, but now the shower, you collect your thoughts. Sure. Hit me. So we, we've essentially ruined like basketball discourse with all the advanced stats and shit like that. Right. And we've, it, it's it's gotten crazy. Like now we don't know. Like the, the, everything has different definitions. Last week, I convinced myself that Joel is not a center anymore. I convinced myself that he's a that he's a shooting guard. Um, bear with me. So, what if I told you that um, instead of quantifying assists to to be a talking point on how good of a playmaker is the guy is we said advantaged possessions created or advantaged shots created, which the only that all, all that means is how much is your playmaking not, not, not resulting in made baskets. Cause that's an arbitrary outcome, right? It's, it's an independent outcome to what Follow. you do. Just how many, how many, how many shots do you create based on your and gravity? How many advantages does your gravity create for others? I think okay. that is the true token of playmaking. Not, not, not does a shot go in or not? Not does the guy make the right decision with the ball? Do you, does your passing create an, an inherent advantage for your team? How many advantages do you create? Okay, passing or just gravity? Well, your gravity is. Gravity is what creates passing. Because if it was just passing, Embiid would be damn near on page three of that category. Right. But if it's all encompassing gravity, sure, he's top five. Well, so so so, taking another level, would Joel be closer in the Jokic discussion if we changed? If we said assists are flawed stats, what if we said advantaged baskets created? Because Joel. He makes the right pass out of the double team pretty often now. It feels like he does not get nearly enough assists because guys miss shots a lot. Yeah, I mean, I there's like plenty of hockey. Right. The, the right. only reason I don't think so is because – and Beat's not a shooting guard. Jokic – is also not a point guard. They're both centers. They're both seven feet, six, 11 plus, whatever. They're the biggest, most skilled guys on the floor. The difference is Jokic is going to bring the ball up the floor. He don't care if he takes five shots or 25 shots. Whether he takes those five or 25, he's going to be efficient with the shot selection, but he's a team first player. He's going to use that gravity to find his teammates. If there's a cutter, he doesn't even need to look at him. Pass to the cutter. If he feels help's coming from the wing, soon as that help commits, the ball's going to the wing. Whereas Embiid, I do think he's a team-friendly player, not a team-first player. He's a score-first player. So you'll catch Embiid sometimes when that double comes. He'll try to dribble out of it. He'll try to shoot over the double. And that leads to some of those irritating turnovers where you're like, bro, why the hell did you put the ball on the floor? You should have passed that three seconds ago. Now the Kings uh, uh, have a possession 
to score with five seconds left and you just lost the game, you idiot. But he makes a miraculous <laughs> defensive stop or he goes down and hits a one-handed fade and everyone forgets about it. But this Jokic and Embiid conversation is becoming the most annoying thing I've ever yeah. seen in my entire I life. Stand it. I can't stand because it. For conferences, and they play two complete styles. They're the same size, and based on size, they're both centers. I'm not going to that Embiid's a shooting guard, but I will say he's a shooting guard disguised as a center if that makes sense. He's still a center. He's still back to the basket. He still dominates in the paint. He still takes 20 free throws on occasion, but he's a shooting guard trapped in a center's body. Jokic is a point guard trapped in a center's body. So then I would ask you this. And I agree. I, I don't think, like, I think if we, if, if I, if I start going around saying Joel is a shooting guard, I'm overthinking. Whatever. Yeah. Cause then Kevin Durant's a shooting guard and then Jason Tatum's a shooting guard. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know that I believe Joel has a lot of center qualities other than the rim protection that he offers. Well, this kind of ties into the shit Hakeem said the other day and Embiid's well, response to that. By the way, I have a rant about this. People are like bitching at Joel about like the whole, like, like, like he never won. He's won. He, why don't you win something first before you say Hakeem has no IQ? Joel is damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. But all anyone seems to want to do is shit on Joel. No matter, no, no oh, matter it's what. crazy. Yeah. Like, like, like I, I, I've never seen a star where, like, even in his own market, there are fans who are like, like, the guy is a fucking monster of, of, of a player, like, an unbelievable beast of a player. He has willed them to more wins that they need to get in the regular season than anyone I've ever seen. I know playoff success hasn't been there. It's also, like, of what a 16 game you you, you you you're trying to get what 16 wins to win a championship in the playoffs i th- i feel like we overweight like the, our memory of playoffs because 16 games compared to a 72 game or even an 82 game season is is like it, it's it's not, it's not, it's not proportionate you know what i mean like are you going to wipe away what a guy does for the first 70 games of a season because he doesn't play well in the playoffs or he has his face broken, or he has a guy who he has a point guard who forgets how to play basketball. Like these are, and granted, Joel has not had a great playoff series, but but I I don't think I can say like it's all his fault that his teams have not gone to where they need to go. He would be the common denominator for fans because he's the longest tenured Sixer, and people have this working theory that you can't win playing through a center in the modern NBA. But Joel Embiid is, if he's not the most, one of the most unique players I've ever watched in my lifetime. Seven feet, 275, 280. I don't care what his weight is. I say that to say he's the biggest player on the floor acting like a shooting guard. But when he's got to play with his back to the basket, he can do that and overwhelm any other center, any other player at his position in the NBA, in the paint on either block. Now, why I brought the Hakeem thing up is people don't like that Embiid plays 15 feet away from the basket. People don't like that he's kind of reinvented his game to become a face-up center as opposed to a back-to-the-basket center. Do these same people realize that 
Nikola Jokic is a face-up player. He faces the basket when he plays too. That's the modern evolution of the big man in the NBA. So sure, if Embiid was playing in the 80s when the three-point shot wasn't as prominent, right? Get your ass on the block and play in the block. But guess what? The three ball, teams take 25 threes a night now. Plus, players... 25 on the low end. On the Bro, players are scoring 40 points every single night. No one reacts because it's the norm now. They make 12 buckets a night. Six of them are three-pointers. Bada-bing, bada-boom. There's 20 points from beyond the arc. That didn't exist in the 80s, in the early 90s, in the late 90s, the early 2000s. So for Embiid, in the modern, if he just played with his basket, you see how much Embiid gets doubled. He gets doubled facing the basket. If he played with his back to the basket, he would get doubled. He would dribble into doubles. He would get trapped every single possession. So here, I'll expand my game. I'll become one of, if not the best mid-range shooters in basketball. I'm going to put Kevin Durant over him, but I'd say Embiid rivals Steph Curry, Devin Booker, Chris Paul, any of those guards. I think Embiid is just as automatic from the mid-range, right? So my mid-range is basically equivalent to a layup. Okay, but I'm James saying the other night when James was like screaming at him, lay up, lay up, lay up. Right. It's the same thing for him. He's 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 making it at 50 percent, 60 percent. You're just as comfortable with him shooting a midi as you are with him a lay. Right. So I'm going to face the bit that way. If a double comes from here, if a double comes from there, I can see the entire thing and then I can pass out easier. Whereas if his back's to the basket. He might get doubled from the baseline. Now he can't pass out of it, whatever. He expanded his game to fit the modern NBA. And that's why I don't understand why people criticize it, why Hakeem says some ignorant stuff like that, because you got to watch the modern game to understand that. We're, we're, we're playing a different brand of basketball. Because it's that, it's, I think it's that whole generation is just like, we don't want to see the game. At, like Much like the 50 to 60 year old white man does not want to, get with the time from a social perspective, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. A lot of times old school players are like, our game was like, we played the game the right way. And, and the world was right when we were kid, you know, when we were that age and, you know, like we don't want to evolve, but. Joel Embiid, if Hakeem Olajuwon, and this is so disrespectful to one of the greatest defensive players the NBA has ever seen a finals winner, finals MVP, deep poise. If Hakeem Olajuwon just came out of college and they dropped him in the NBA, I'll give him four years, five years. If you took prime Hakeem Olajuwon and put him on the court with Joel Embiid, I'm not saying Embiid's going to beat him one-on-one. I'm not saying Embiid's not going to struggle with Hakeem. But guess what? They're going to go bucket for bucket. Hakeem's going to have just as hard of a time stopping Embiid as Embiid would have a hard time stopping Hakeem. I, I, don't, I don't get it, Krell. The guy's averaging 33, basically 34 points per game. If he scores less than 30 points per game, you're like, what the hell happened? He yeah. usually scores 35 plus. Let's call it what it is, 34 points per game on 53% shooting. He takes 20 shots. He's going to make 10 of them. He still takes 10 free throws. Yeah, you could say he's not a great rebounder. 
He doesn't always exert himself uh, defensively. When it's crunch time, when he's got to get a stop, he's locked in. I don't know what more you want from the guy. He's averaging 34 points per game on over 50% shooting efficiency. And he expanded his game to fit the modern NBA. So he'll give you a tween hang as he pull from the mid-range. What center throw that's in the Hall of Fame could do that? Not Shaq, not Patrick Ewing, Ewing at a midi, not like this. Not Hakeem, Tim Dunn, uh, Kevin Garnett. Yeah, the, the, the modern four. No center in NBA history has a bag as deep as this one. And people aren't going to appreciate it. I don't even know if they will when he's gone, but hopefully they do. Yeah, they'll probably miss the, They will probably uh, uh, probably appreciate him when he's not a sixer anymore. Probably. Well, yeah, that too, which hopefully I don't have to see that. I don't have to have my entire childhood ruined and, and uprooted because this guy isn't appreciated. They go and trade him to the Celtics. The Celtics run the table and win nine chips before I turn 33. Yeah, but uh, listen, it yeah. is what it is. You, you, uh, you can only control what you can control. It's a good. So I'm going to appreciate it while it's here. It's a good segue to the last thing. To me, it feels like the fan base is not as bought into this team as maybe they deserve. The team deserves to be bought into. The team is 30 and 16 right now. They have a top five point differential in basketball. Last time I checked. Um, They've won five in a row include in, in, on a five-game road trip. They swept that out west across the country. They're the only team in the top six of either conference to do that this year. Why isn't there buy-in out of this fan base? Crow, you just threw now, me a – Granted, granted, I'm a little bit biased in that question because them playing well is inherently good for my No, work. no, no. Listen, you just threw me a Montrez Harrell screen and roll to the basket lob from James Harden question. Simple answer here. You see the Memphis Grizzlies on Sports Center. They pack their arena. The fans love it. There's no football team in Memphis. Yeah, LA, the Lakers, they're on TV all the time. They bring out the stars. Come on, you got you got a 27-0 Charger demise. You've got Derek Carr. Yeah, yeah, I mean the 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 Phoenix Suns, yeah, yeah, they're great. They got this great home courted. Kyler Murray, no one can listen. The Eagles have the most valuable player in football at the quarterback position. They've got AJ Brown and Devontae Smith lining up together on the line of scrimmage with a tight end that can catch, block, and truck dudes. They've got a defense full of stars. They lost very few games in the regular season, and they're going to kick. Brock Purdy's ass on their own grass. Wow. In in five, six, I don't know how many days. You That's heard it why. First. You heard it here first, Brock Landon. That's why. If the Eagles weren't doing as well, if Carson Wentz was the quarterback, Nick Foles, uh, Kevin Cobb, no one would care. They'd they'd be fully invested. But you know how Philly is. They like they like shiny gratification. Philly's World Series run. I have never seen more Philly fans in, in my entire life. I went to the 08 World Series parade when I was eight years old. I was watching baseball since I was six. I've never seen more Philly fans in my life than in the previous Philly yeah, season when they when, when they go to the World Series. Really, the Eagles are in the really playoffs. The yeah. Eagles in the playoffs. The whole city, they're lit up green. You, you, you bump into a guy in Wawa. 
Hey, no, listen, if it's not the football season and you bump into a guy in Wawa, he might try to he, he just spit on you, try to fight you. Hey, <laughs> he just hits you with a go birds and you say it right back to him. That's Philly. So when the Eagles are done with their business, everybody will come back around on the Sixers. From a national media perspective, I don't understand it. People hate Embiid. They hate the Sixers. But uh, from a Philly perspective, that's probably because that sells. Hating, I, I didn't believe this until I heard this from a radio person who has worked in different markets. And they were like, yeah, negativ- neg- negativity towards Philadelphia teams sells. Like, just- uh, not even just Philly, bro. How do you think Stephen Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp get paid the same thing athletes do? It's because they get on TV every day and they talk shit about people. It's yeah. it's what people are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is Doc. I think people don't trust Doc. Although I think oh, Doc's yeah. done a really good job this year, if you ask me. Um, and... You know, they, they don't buy into Joel and James. Uh, the num- proof is in the pudding. I mean, you, you got it. You simply have to deep. You need to use the regular season as a launching pad for your playoff run. There's no there's no way around it. So you can you can miss me with the whole wait to the playoffs argument because I still got to cover 82 games in the regular season before I can judge them on the playoffs. So Which, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that real quickly. Two games. Yeah, I, I, I worked with my dad right i'm saying 82 should be cut to 62 you keep this and and decrease the amount of games 20 but my old man said listen these teams aren't going to sacrifice 20 games worth of revenue and and ticket sales and stadium sales. so what you do is you add a, a, a month to the season and you say listen you can sit games out due to load management but only home games it feels like in the past month it's been pretty outrageous with how many players are resting due to load management. I'm not a boomer, so I can't say I really care. But at the same time, you, your son, and your daughter buy tickets to go see LeBron James in L.A. You find out 30 minutes before Tippy sitting out due to non-COVID illness, which it seems like every star player keeps getting this non-COVID illness You'd be pretty mad. So, hey, take your rest, whatever. It's got to be home games only. You got to play on the road. Yeah. I, I think there is something to it. Like, if you if you really want to earn back some fans. I mean, I think some fans don't like the NBA anymore because the, the, they spend their their hard-earned, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps money and on the, uh, you know, to, to get to, to get the good, good games. And then, oh, uh, Kawhi Leonard is missing games with, with load management. And then like all oh, these entitled basketball players, all they want is to make money and sit on the sidelines, you know. Um, no, you know. So I think if you could if you cut that in the season, maybe you earn back some fans because guys aren't resting as much, um, and every game is a little more important. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what you do there. I mean, I would. Lo- I don't have a problem either way. I think it would be take a little bit of adjusting in terms of like, okay, we are in January. Do we do we start picking it up? now the urgency or do we wait until you know if we know whatever um i think 72 games would work that, that's games. fine too i just don't 72. think players I think, like I, I think the 66 game format when they had the lockout shortened year yeah worked pretty well i mean the players it's 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 hard for them to care in november december january for an 82 game season, even if they know they're going to make the playoffs, it's it's the typical Warriors formula. You forget about us during the great the, the the grungy part of the season. Come playoff time, oh shit, it's the Warriors. I forgot about these guys. 
it's tough for these guys to care. And if you really want to incentivize games on national TV the same way maybe the NBA does, you have to figure this out. I mean, listen to the players. It's right in your face. They keep doing this. Change the name of the awards. Add this midseason crap. It's all fine, but listen to the players. They're sitting out there. They're, they're doing this load management thing. You want to change it, but you don't do anything to change it. So it's time to uh, workshop that 82-game schedule, in my opinion. I agree. Just like it's time to shop, the advantage is created per game. <laughs> there you go. That's another one. We'll 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 have Adam Silver on the next feed to MB. We'll ask what he we'll thinks. Do, we'll, we'll be screen assists, and uh, it'll be a, it'll be advantages created per yeah, game. We'll move the goalposts so people can be just as horny for Embiid as they are Jokic. Yeah. I, Jokic thing we'll get into another time. All I know is this. I would bet good. I would if I were a better, which I am not, because I'm a, I'm an integrity having beat writer. Yeah. Uh, I would bet a lot of money that Joel is ain't missing Saturday against Jokic. That's for sure. <laughs> he's, he's he's strapping up and he's playing. He's showing um, up. And he's gonna have that's a message. In, he's gonna have about forty in the first quarter. <laughs> Listen, he gets Ben on and Jokic on Saturday. Say again. He gets Ben on Wednesday. Oh yeah. Ben for three quarters, and then he gets Jokic on Saturday, I believe. It's it's a damn shame what's happened to Ben, isn't it? It is, but I just don't even talk about it anymore. I I laugh about it, and it's like an X. They're they're water onto the bridge now. Are you just not a Ben guy anymore? Uh, No, I'm not. I can't be. I I, I stopped. How how are you going to say – what are you going to – Listen, see, see we, think, we, I, we're an hour in. It's too late. We're too deep in to, to do this right now. I I think I'm still – so the, this version of Ben is just not a good player. Like, What do you I, mean this version of Ben? This is the same Ben that's been right in front of our eyes. No, for, it's not. Nah, this the is, points game is down, whatever. It's still the same this Ben. No, nah, this is not the same Ben. This, I this, think it is. This is, this, this is, this is a, a broken Ben. This is who he is. He looks, he looks broken to me, and I feel that, bad. And that's what he was. That's what he was for the first two years of our lives. He was very good those first three years of the six. Uh, yeah, sure. The first three years, yeah, I'll give him that. But since uh, that that Ben is dead and gone, bro. That Ben. Yeah, oh, yeah. Let, let, put it this way. Put it this way. I hope he's taking that thirty-five mil, that five hundred k he makes per game, and he's investing in Tesla and stocks, whatever. He'll he'll be good on money, but he'll never see a contract like that again. That thirty three mil per oh, yeah. season, you could kiss that goodbye. You'll make you'll make eighteen, twenty four, whatever. But. I I think he might be an MLE guy on his next deal, but uh, that would be a fall I, from I, grace, wouldn't it? I was, I was talking to somebody close to him, and I was like, "Do you, does he still want to play?" Like after his contract, he's like, "Yeah." I was like, "It didn't seem so obvious that he wants to play." I Listen, mean, Ben Ben doesn't care about ball like that for real. Ben likes the. Ben likes going out to the club and shooting a shot with Meg the Stallion. And Ben likes the, the women and the Riz and the, the cars. He's 6'10 Australian with any car. Listen, women love cars, bro. They love cars. This dude is 6'10. They love cars and height. He's 6'10 Australian, so he's got a little accent with any car in his garage. Bro, he's got Riz. He can get any girl he wants, and that's all Ben cares about. He don't care about ball for real, bro. All right, Brock. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, he is Brock Landis, the king of Sixers YouTube streaming, uh, Twitter, TikTok. What else you got, Brock? 
I don't know, Twitter, TikTok, whatever. I just make content. I just try to do things that's different from everybody else. I feel like I do a pretty good job at that. You do a great job. Brock, we will see you soon. And uh, I'm Austin Krell. Of course, you know me on the Sixers beat. Uh, Sixers play, they host the Nets, the Nuggets, and then twice against the Magic and then over the next four games. So a, uh, I don't know if that's a good chance, but here's an opportunity there for them to win nine straight and really uh, separate themselves as the two seed in the East. He's Brock Landis. I'm Austin Krell. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. Stepping back.